In the ring with Eusebius Markaiser. Eusebius Markaiser. I've said before that one of the few downsides of podcasting, depending on how you set it up, is that you don't get that instant direct engagement with an audience, which is what made live talk radio so much fun for me. And I might return to that medium. But at the moment, podcasting, in my opinion, is the exciting present, not the future. And it suits my lifestyle and the multiple other things I'm doing in my many careers related to politics and social discourse, plus other kinds of work that I do with corporates and many institutions. Be that as it may, what it does mean is that sometimes you listen to my work or you catch an interview on TV or radio and you don't have the immediacy that you used to have when I was, for example, doing an open line. So what I need to do more often, and I'm really bad at it, maybe Abel, my producer, will remind me of this periodically, is to do short responses to very specific questions that you raise, either via the DM, direct messaging, access to me on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, or perhaps openly on a thread or in the comment section on Facebook. And that's what I want to do in this little episode. I got the following letter, I'm going to read it, from one of the very generous followers of my work, and then I want to see whether I can say something productive in response to a question they'd asked that I think is really interesting. So here goes. It's written by Anonymous, and Anonymous says the following. Hi, Eusebius. I have just watched your interview with DJ Subu and found it phenomenal. Thanks, Anonymous. Probably a bit of context and background, they say. This is my catfish account. Please don't stop reading because, yes, I know I'm a coward for that. I'm a 35-year married guy in a closet, been into guys from as far as I can remember, but had never had it in me to explore it. My first sexual encounter, says Anonymous with a guy, was last year, 2021, in January after I got to know about Grinder. You touched on a case of men in the closet in your interview, but you did not quite dive into it, you see, yes? I really would have loved to hear what your views are. I'm particularly keen to hear how your views have evolved over time. Specifically, because for me, since that first encounter with a guy, my closet is just becoming smaller and I'm practically suffocating now, but I'm still working hard to remain well for various reasons, which, if tested objectively, would probably be stupid. So would you please continue with this conversation on your In The Ring podcast. Now, there's a couple of things I want to say by way of preliminary responses to that message. The first thing is that I want to thank you for even using an anonymous account, trusting me with your story and with your vulnerability. It is not easy. It is not easy in a homophobic world where there are social roles expected of you even in a country like ours, with nominally progressive gay rights jurisprudence, the gap between laws and policies on the one hand, and the realities of what happens in the church, in the workplace, in the family, in the community, is massive, that gap between a vision of a free society in which you can be truly your authentic self, and the actual social structures within which our lives are embedded. 
So kudos to you for having the bravery and the necessary sense to not live in your head, but to reach out and to try and connect with someone that you think might be willing to be in conversation with you and help you to just maintain your sanity, if nothing else. So I really want to thank you and also affirm you for having done that. Secondly, those who did not see the interview may be confused by part of what you had written, so I better backtrack now a little bit before answering you directly. In the interview, I had said to DJ Subu that once views evolve, and if they don't evolve, it means that you either haven't lived or that you are so stubborn that you are intellectually dishonest and not willing to self-examine your views over time as you encounter new experiences, new people, new thinkers, read new books that make you think deeply about whether a belief, for example, that you held earlier in your life is one you should modify or not or retain in exactly the same format. And a lot of what I had argued for in my first book, Ubuntu in my bathroom, some of it remains the same. Some of it is radically different now in terms of how my convictions have shifted. And then there's a lot in between where there are simply question marks in light of counter considerations that I take a bit more seriously. And what Anonymous is referring to is a chapter in which I was very critical of men on the down low. And I had said to DJ Subu that my view has evolved, but I did not explain it. So let me do exactly that. If you haven't read about to my bathroom, there's an essay in that first collection of essays in which I basically argue that men on the down low can and should be criticized for living unethical lives. Now, somebody who's in the down low is essentially someone who lives for ease of description, a double life. You might, like Anonymous, be married to a woman, and maybe you've got a guy that you are seeing on the side, and you've not disclosed that information to your wife. You possibly may not even have disclosed the information of your marriage in turn to your boyfriend or the person that is a partner of yours for purposes of sexual pleasure, even if you don't self-identify as gay or bisexual or pansexual, whatever the case might be. So the idea of the down low is the idea of doing different things at different times of the day, different parts of your week, month, and you just make sure that different areas of your lives are kept apart. And there are many men in that situation that Anonymous is in. I have encountered many over the years. I have not yet fully written about some of my experiences where, um, and I've alluded to this, I've stated it, but I haven't really cashed it out, where I myself had dated a man that was married. So I'm very familiar with that setup. And I also know many men who are married, but who actually self-identify as gay and for all sorts of reasons choose to be in those marriages. But essentially they are on the down low. Why did I criticize them? Because as a young person obsessed with philosophy in the analytic tradition, drawing on some of the most dominant ethical theories in philosophy, I thought it was straightforwardly obvious that being on the down low and specifically 
being in a situation such as anonymous is, is unethical. If you take, for example, the ethical thinking of German philosopher Immanuel Kant, no homophonic pun intended, then essentially what he says is make sure that you don't undermine the autonomy of another person in how you relate to them. I'm taking shortcuts here, but being faithful to the essence of the, the ethical theory. So when I treat you, I must always show respect towards you, and specifically what respect means is affirming and certainly never undermining your autonomy as a person. What does that mean practically? Well, it means, for example, that if I have information that you require in order for you to exercise a decision affecting your own life in light of your own deeply held values and principles, then I ought to disclose it. Otherwise, I'm undermining your autonomy because I'm intentionally disabling you from taking a decision based on a full set of information and data that can allow you to decide for yourself what you want to do or not do, or be a part of or not be a part of. It follows from there, quite straightforwardly, I thought, that being on the darn low is ethically problematic. Because if you're married to a woman, so I argued, and you're secretly dating Eusebius on the side, now yes, yes, footnote, it's for another podcast episode, the role of the person on the side raises its own ethical questions in relation to their behavior. But let's stick with the person with the vantage point of the married man. In terms of their behavior, they are intentionally undermining the wife's autonomy in the sense of intentionally withholding critical information that the wife ought to be given so that they can decide for themselves whether or not they want to be implicated in a non-monogamous relationship. And if you don't do so, and you don't disclose, then you are trampling on their autonomy, and that just is the essence of an unethical relationship. Finish and clear. Simple. So that was my view. So I guess Anonymous wants to know what I mean by, you know, my view has evolved. This is an example, and and this is why the next edition of of essays that I write, God knows when I will get around to finishing it, will include a description of how my views have evolved on a range of issues. So if you're listening to this podcast right now, you're getting an early edition of one chapter in a future collection of essays that look back at what I had written in Ubuntu in my bathroom and Run Races Run and tells you, five, ten years later, whether I still have the same views on those hot-button issues. And on the issue of men on the down low, there's been a shift. Not a shift from certainty to certainty, but I would describe it as a shift from certainty to question marks and empathy. And that's kind of interesting, I hope. It demonstrates that even if you are a keen debater and you've studied legal theory and philosophy as I have and you've got strongly held opinions, you know you must be open to revising your view 
Um, if you are not, then you are simply recalcitrant, and that's not a praiseworthy characteristic. What is the shift that happened in me? Well, I asked myself, who'd many men or women or persons in general, doesn't have to be man or woman, anyone, human being, wake up and set out to hurt someone deliberately? Now, the answer is, of course, yes, some people just are evil. Some people are not evil, but do things that are harmful, right? I mean, that's part of the human condition. We all have that capacity to harm, to injure, to be malicious, even if it's not who we are 24-7. So, so sure, we can. But I, I don't think, and this applies in many other contexts, but I'm going to withhold other examples to, to, to just keep us tight in this conversation. I don't think, in my experience, that many of the men that live double lives do so because they get a kick out of it. Most of them do so because the structures within which their lives are embedded constrain them. For example, I know one person who has a relationship with his father that is, in my opinion, so unhealthy that his father's grip on his life is incredible to the point where he lives to simply affirm the wishes of the father. And the best way to do so is in part by having a particular career and living up to heteronormative standards, including marriage and having children. And in his case, it's not even a religious impulse that he has to remain married. It is almost directly, and the details I'm sparing because I don't want to expose the person, but I'll give details stripped down to the essentials. Perhaps when I write about this kind of thing in a, in a future collection of essays. But essentially, what, what drives that decision to, to live the double life is precisely that kind of service um, towards keeping the father figure that you have as happy as possible. Your life is in service of making daddy happy. I know that might sound bizarre to you or to me. I mean, I remember when I came out, uh, I honestly didn't care how my father was going to react. I love my father to bits. He knows that. We've got a good relationship. But I was adamant that I will be myself and everyone else must just decide whether they want to be part of my life or not. But we don't all make those choices. And that's the difference between Eusebius, who wrote about in my bathroom, and Eusebius speaking in this podcast episode now. Because if you value your relationship with your conservative, heteronormative father in the way in which the person that I have in mind does, then your choices look differently than the choices of second-year Eusebius, who came out during his second year at Rhodes University. And so suddenly... I'm, I'm now faced with a conundrum as an older author compared to the young essayist that wrote that first collection of essays. Because now I ask myself, it is still true that it's wrong to undermine the autonomy of the wife. But is that the end of the essay and then you go to the next essay? Well, suddenly for me, 
I'm no longer so sure that that's all that one can say to condemn based on a very neat description of how autonomy must be the only consideration when you think about what to say or not to say to another person with whom you are in a relationship with, such as your wife. Now, as a bystander, I ask myself, is it possible to hold two views simultaneously? To recognize that the non-disclosure of your after-nine relationship with a man is harmful to your wife in a negative way. Sure, she's not aware of it, so it's not direct harm, as would be the case if you physically assaulted someone. But there is a kind of moral harm there by withholding crucial information. And yet at the same time, I want to say something else, that it's not so obvious to me that I must withhold any and all compassion for why that decision to not disclose isn't a straightforward decision for the person that is on the down low. Because their decision is one that is located within social structures like the family structure, church, wider community, the locker room, sports clubs, that are fundamentally homophobic and based on masculinities that are, that are unhealthy. And it takes a phenomenal person rather than the average person to be able to reject what is dominant in social structures. So Anonymous, I know that's a long response to you, but I hope you can see what I mean by the evolution in my own views. And the reason why I haven't moved from certainty to certainty is is that I do not want to be misunderstood as now holding the view that being on the down low is ethically unproblematic not disclosing to your partner that you have same-sex desire if you are married to someone from another gender is unproblematic. That is not my current view. But my current view is rather from a position of clear judgment of someone who is on the down low to suddenly raise critical questions about how we are to understand harmful decisions that are made in the context of social structures that are harmful. And I don't know what that means and where that leaves one. If you like mathematical certainty, you're not going to get it from me in this edition of In the Ring with Eusebius MacKaiser. What I hope you will get is a sense of the importance of bringing complexity to making sense of why it is that so many adults live secret lives. And maybe to end on a sort of wistful but practical note, even if it's wistful, how do we change this? That's a discussion that should be fully fleshed out in a separate edition of the podcast. But the one thing that's very clear to me is that if anonymous or the person I used as an example who wants to please his father was raised in a society in which they could be 
teenage queer boys and young men without fear of reprisal from a teacher, a coach, dad, mom, the church. I think it is obvious that we would reduce the odds of them being adults that live multiple lives. And so, yes, all of us are implicated in the making of adults that keep secrets. Just think about that. <laughs>